a 2021 Mac Pro with a 2.5 gigahertz, 28 core Intel Xeon W processor with 1.5 terabytes of memory, two Radeon Pro Vega 2 Duos, eight terabytes SSD storage, Pro Display and Stand will cost you $66,850.37. An Acer Chromebook with barely any storage and not even a full featured operating system will cost you $110 plus tax. With one, you have a top-of-the-line computer that allows you to create mind-melting worlds at just unheard-of speeds. With the other, you have the modern-day equivalent of a paper notebook and a pencil. Which do you choose? Value is a tricky thing. If you only want to work with a top-of-the-line machine and you have the cash, then you're going with the Mac Pro. If you just need a utility machine for something to do while you're watching TV around email, you're probably going to go with the Acer Chromebook. Of course, our decisions are more complicated, but we're all constantly making value trade-offs, and in our SaaS businesses, it's no different. Yet to make these decisions quickly and efficiently, we need to look at them through a consistent framework and lens, especially because these decisions happen constantly, and this is where values come into play. These values make up the compass that guides you towards your North Star, and without these values, your compass ossifies, making it challenging to aim for true North. No one understands the importance and magnitude of values more than Nick Francis. He's the co-founder and CEO of Help Scout. Nick has built a company with purpose. His standards are sky high, but they're not rooted in snobbery. Instead, Nick has built a beautiful product by seeking excellence. His pride and appreciation for hard work and craftsmanship are driven by ideals close to his heart. And we're going to go deep here and elsewhere coming up next. From Profilwell Recur, it's Protect the Hustle, where we explore the truth behind the strategies and tactics of B2B SaaS growth to make you an outstanding operator. On today's episode, we discuss the thin line between being stubborn and principled, software as a craft industry, permeating shared values throughout a team, tactical steps to DEI, and the decision-making values filter. Let's start off like super generic. Like, who are you? What do you guys do? What are you all about, man? My name is Nick Francis. I'm co-founder and CEO of Help Scout. We started the company about 10 years ago. We make customer support tools for small businesses and uh, are having a lot of fun doing it. We're fully remote culture and have about 110 people on the team today and about 10,000 customers across 140 countries. So we're having fun. That's cool, man. And I, I've always enjoyed, one, I enjoy talking to you because we're friends, but I've also just enjoyed seeing the journey of different steps. Tell us a little bit about the buzz agent space back in the day. Oh yeah. Well, I, I met you, I think when we were in Techstars, right? So back in yeah. 2011, I think I met you uh, in Cambridge, but yeah, our first office space was was given to us by a good friend of both of ours, Mr. Dave Walter. He ran a company called Buzz Agent in uh, Boston in the South End. And yeah, we did have a, an office there for, I don't know, three or four years. Like we were remote from day one, but that was really a home base for us. We still have a Boston office today. There's so many people, so many incredible names that influenced and shaped the company early on. That Boston startup community is just phenomenal. And I know you've benefited from it as well, but so grateful to, to folks like Dave and many, many others that, that have been part of our journey so far. Yeah, it's been pretty wild because it was during that Techstars class, there was 
there were a ton of companies that came out of that that did really, really well or are continuing to do well. And I know there's something about that community at that time. And I did, I was just, I felt so lucky just to be like there. I remember I was, I don't know if you know this, but um, the first time we kind of hung out, I was like, oh, let's go hang out and get coffee. And you made like AeroPress coffee. And I was such a square. I was like, what is this AeroPress? And like, this, that's when I knew like you were a strong opinion person who like yes. really enjoyed quality, like, and would absolutely have this back office background that you have right now and, and things like that. But uh, yeah, it's been, it's, it's been a fun ride to kind of see. And, and when you and I talked back then, you were very opinionated about like raising cash as well as like, um, you know, the whole remote vibe. Uh, I do remember, I don't know if you want me to say this, that uh, you told me that you would raise money over your dead body at one point. Um, <laughs> and then I remember we went out to dinner with uh, Paul and a couple other folks from the crew. And then all of a sudden you were like, I have to tell you something. <laughs> and that's when you had raised cash. So what's that ethos, right? You know, I've alluded to it a couple of times here, but you have this ethos of like being really, really strong opinion but then I've seen you change your opinions like really quickly. Like, is that something that's just innate in you? Is that something you've developed? Um, is that something you even see in yourself or, or am I just making that up as a, a backseat psychologist here? No, I think it does go back to just my commitment to quality. I, I remember even like in my early childhood, I was a nerd. I, I was a computer person. And even from the earliest days, I, I always, I remember telling my parents, like, I want the best like, why, why do people buy things that aren't the best? <laughs> like I was obsessed with the best or the, the, the highest quality things. And, and that did uh, manifest itself as a coffee snobbery hobby, but over time, but, but generally I've, I've just, I've been so attracted to great work, you know, beautiful design or well-implemented software or whatever it may be. I've always wanted the work that I do to be associated with high quality and excellence. And that's really what's rewarding for me. It's not about the size or scale of the company. I know that energizes a lot of entrepreneurs. For me, like even going back to 2011, what I wanted to do was make things that I was really proud of and, and design and create things that I thought were beautiful, that I thought were really easy to use and that people really like to use. Like that just energizes me full on. And so I've developed a series of principles that really guide my decision-making and my thought process along the lines of, of seeking excellence as a, as, a, as a person, but also through my company. And so anything that would sort of undermine or call into question the commitment to excellence has always been something that I just want to, I just want to learn about. I want to understand before digging in, you know, raising capital, means that your business is going to grow at a scale and at a speed that may end up compromising the excellence part of the work at some point. I like to say there's a thin line between stubborn and principles. And I always try to, to stay pretty far along the line of, of, of having and being guided by principles. I don't want to be known as somebody that's stubborn or won't change their mind. I, I remember just yesterday afternoon, totally changing my mind uh, on something just given given new data, right? So I love to, to be able to form opinions, but then change those opinions over time. And as an entrepreneur, you, you, have to, you have to kind of realize the power dynamics that exist like in a company like mine. For me to have an opinion holds real weight. And so I've started to kind of back away from always having an opinion because that may shape other people's uh, perspective in ways that don't feel right. 
So I'm learning over time, you know, when it's important to use my opinion and when it's, when it's not, I can always have an opinion either way, but I don't always have to talk about it. There's a lot to unpack there. But <laughs> what I'm curious about is how do you develop this, right? Like, like where does this come from for you? I know you had this kind of innately on, on some level, you know, in your childhood, but you equally could have had the opposite, right? You equally could have like, I don't want to ever pay the most. I don't ever want, I want to get volume or I don't know what that would mean or how it manifests when you're a kid, but how did you kind of develop that? Like, is it come from, you know, the craftsmanship, which is something that I always associate with you as well. Like, and is it, you know, where, where, where did that come from? You think actually, let's just leave the question at that. It's, it's a really interesting question that I've pondered a lot because I, I know it bothers a lot of people in my life, my wife included, <laughs> my obsession <laughs> with quality uh, and, and wonderful things. And I get a lot of enjoyment out of material objects. I just do. And I always have my whole life. And I was very lucky when I was when I was a kid. My my mom, like she's a school teacher, she used her own money to buy me a laptop when I was in fifth grade. Uh, and it was a Mac and growing up using Macs and really, and using the, the software that was on the, the Mac back in that day was, I think it really just liberated my creative side in a way that, you know, no other product was going to do. Like I remember using a product called HyperCard that like totally changed my life. It's like HyperCard's kind of like Keynote, but like with a backend where you can actually write code and markup, right? Like there's a real kind of database aspect to it. And that just let my creativity just run loose pre-internet, right? So there's a number of things along the way that just nurtured my appreciation for quality software and quality objects. And I think that using Max growing up was like a big piece of it. And you can imagine the, you know, Steve Jobs keynotes that were piped into to my brain for many years before I even started a company. That was powerful. My first computer I ever bought myself was a Mac. I saved up all my money. I got that little 12 inch MacBook Pro. Or I think it was a MacBook Pro at that point. The little titanium nice. one. And yeah, I think it's, it, there's something about whether you already have that mindset from, you know, something, you know, in your rearing, or if it's something that you develop about using those types of products, it kind of like, begets more of that. It begets more of that, that personality. And I think that's where you see, at least for me, there's a lot of entrepreneurs that are frustrating people to their loved ones, um, you know, just because of these types of things. I know Jenny on my end, like it's always very, very similar of like, no, 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 I don't want this Ikea crap. Like I don't. And then it's like a little bit Ikea stuff for like certain things. I'm fine. Fine. We don't, we're not going to wait 18 months to buy a couch, do what you got to do. But you know, that type of thing, which is interesting. Yeah, you get some good marriage counseling over the years and we figure out how to how to make these sort of dynamics work. How has this kind of affected you and Help Scout? Because I think that what I've always loved about you guys is that um, I think you and I had this conversation a long time ago about like small batch software. Like what would that look like? Like obviously software can be infinite just given that it's code, but what if you treated it like small batch, right? And I think that you're in a, a market where there's obviously a huge behemoth in, in someone like a Zendesk, and then there's a bunch of other options. Like, how do you think about this in the context of building, you know, something that people are using every day, but then there's also a lot of options? Yeah, I wrote a piece several years ago, basically asserting that 
software was the next craft industry, right? So we, when we think of craft, we, we think of free trade or micro brews or, you know, something that's like farm to table and it's just the highest quality, no compromises taken along the way in order to deliver a product. And, and you typically see those sorts of things in a commoditized market, right? So there's nothing much more commoditized than beer, for instance. But today there are more microbreweries in the U.S., than there's ever been, and they continue to grow. And it's just a, this wonderful ecosystem where people are even learning from and helping each other in that ecosystem. It's not necessarily an overly competitive thing. And so applying that lens to software, and especially in some of the bigger markets, I was really happy to join a competitive market because you know, on one side, we do compete with some really big companies, but on the other side, I think this is an evergreen, basically incalculable TAM that we can continue to invest in for, for a very long time to come. And for a business to talk to their customers, that's always going to be one of their top three priorities, right? Being able to deliver a, a great customer service experience. So that's just a problem that I'm never going to fall out of love with. And whether that's sort of a commoditized problem, I don't, I don't really care. Like that's why we precisely wanted to enter the market. It's like, what would it be? like to enter a really big market, but actually focus on a really clear ideal customer profile. And for us, it's small businesses and try to own that segment of the market with the highest quality product that we can make and really be ride or die with SMB. The way that soft, most software companies grow is they start in the SMB and then they kind of make their way up market. And you can, you can name a hundred companies that have done that successfully, but very few have committed to the SMB for the long term. And so by combining that with our values around excellence and quality, I felt like we were in control of our own destiny. We would build a great company that had a, an impact in the market, regardless of really what anybody else did. And so that felt really exciting to me. What's both frustrating and invigorating me based on this conversation is that you have a bit of an enigma situation happening. Just you, you're an enigma in and of itself. But what I mean by that is you're dedicating to like craftsmanship, right? And I've seen that, you know, secondhand, just, I know, um, I don't, I don't think you're uncomfortable with me saying this, but, you know, I know that you guys manually went in and maybe you're still doing this and tag each customer that comes on board with which persona they're in. Right. And there's very few companies who do things like that. And then there's a bunch of other things, just how you produce content, how you thought about sales, how you fought not having sales, but then figured out like, how can we have sales in the help scout way? And you also, you know, you want to grow. Like I joke with you sometimes that you're the you know biggest hippie capitalist you know that 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 exists, right? How do you take those principles and stick with them, right? Because there's so many things that can nibble around the edges, and it's not necessarily a moral question because it's not like going up to the enterprise is immoral. It's just an option. How do you kind of stick with that? And then you know the second question, which we can get into later, is how do you convince the team to stick with that too? Especially because it's hard to find people who can take that stubbornness and, and work with it. Ultimately, I'm probably just optimizing for my own self-interest, right? And I think that most founders are actually doing that, right? They're designing the company that they would want to work for. They're designing the product that they would want to use. And I guess that the principles and values that I've uh, accumulated over time, I guess that I've just decided, like, I'm just going to optimize for what makes me feel really excited about the work. And I think that if we, if we hire 
people of, of like mind, you know, you, you hire people that, that share some of those values, then it's going to resonate. It's going to be really different. It's going to be a different culture. It's going to be a different product. So at a very kind of core level, I don't have to think about it too much because this is just kind of who I am. And I'm, I've, we've been very lucky along the way that, you know, a lot of our, our teammates and a lot of our customers resonate with this particular brand of self-interest and mm. wanting to make great products and wanting to, to be good to customers in a way that far exceeds, you know, what you're going to experience with other companies. And so I just love that opportunity of waking up every day and trying to be, be the best at something. There's a competitive side to it. Like we want to build a big company. That's the other thing too. It's a lot of people mistake a, a commitment to quality or a commitment to certain values as, you know, they sort of throw the lifestyle business uh, phrase around and truly I want to have the biggest possible impact that we can have. And that's ultimately one of the reasons why we have raised capital is that, you know, we see an impact that we can have on the world and the community around us that's immense. And we want to, we want to see that impact come to fruition. I get really excited about balancing the push pull between growth and purpose as a company. And, and so I've, I've really started to embrace that. You, you know very well that we are a public benefit corporation and a certified B corporation. So uh, we care deeply about a number of different stakeholders in addition to shareholders. And by way of thinking about making products and building a business that way, I think we just so happen to surround ourselves with a lot of people and customers and other businesses that share those values. And one of the things I love about the way products are bought today is that people buy products based on a sense of shared values. So I actually think that some of these things are coming to the fore in terms of, well, when I buy customer support software, I want to know that the company really deeply like cares about this stuff the way that I care about it. And so many of our customers buy because of that rather than feature parity, right? Check in a box that, that you or a technical requirement that you have. So I just see that manifest in, in so many positive and exciting ways that, you know, I'm having a lot of fun 10 years in and not, not a lot of entrepreneurs can say that. Do you worry about like, what if an entrepreneur has not necessarily this, it's that they don't have the shared values, but they might have misunderstood values, right? Like, I think that right now, in society, we have all these fissures, right? And, and it's either you're on my tribe, you're not on my tribe, right? And is it good enough to care about the most generalized but true like morals and values if maybe that doesn't, you know, match up with one group or another that, you know, someone wants to, to support or not, right? So, you know, I don't know if you saw, but like Hotjar, you know, they, they had the Trump campaign, which is a presidential campaign, right? And yeah. you know, we don't have to get into politics, but obviously, yeah. you know, Trump is uh, Trump. Let's just say he's a little polarizing. You know, different. You, no yeah, matter different. no matter if you align with Republican values, he's a polarizing figure, right? But that's a little different, you know, than supporting Black Lives Matter, and that's a little bit different than supporting someone who used to be a part of a, a bad group, but then the bad group got really, really bad. Let's you know, maybe not label the group, and then left it. It repented. These types of things, like how do you kind of square some of these things, right? Because that's, I know I've struggled with this and I know you're someone who I don't think struggles with this at all, if, if, if I'm not mistaken. <laughs> I don't tend to struggle with this because it again goes back to these values that I'm very interested in, not only personally, but seeing them propagate 
through the market and with other entrepreneurs. So for me, like the, the big core motivation that I have, I love the customer support space and I love making software. But when I wake up in the morning, I'm thinking about the future of work. I'm thinking about the next generation of entrepreneurs and how can I do something today that's going to help inform the playbook that they use to start their company. And in that regard, I'm going to make some decisions in my own sort of self-interest, right? Where we're going to lead with values because the next generation depends on that. You know, the next generation depends on us supporting racial justice organizations like we do. We just made a $10,000 donation to five different racial justice organizations. We talk about Black Lives Matter. We talk about pride. We talk about all sorts of things that celebrate being human and celebrate equality and the need for equality in our society. If people want to politicize human rights and human equality, they can do that. But I just refuse to believe that that's a, that's a left or right thing. That's just a human right. <laughs> so when we advocate for diversity in tech and Black Lives Matter and the environment and human rights, I feel okay doing that because one, people buy based on a sense of shared values. You don't buy Patagonia because they make a good jacket. It's nice that they make a good jacket, but you buy because you probably share some values with that business and how they allocate their capital as a company. And I think there's just going to be more and more and more of that in software business and in this next generation of companies that come about. So I feel an obligation and a duty to lead with our values when it, when it comes down to it. And I don't think that you, can, you, you have to choose between leading with values and growing a, a gigantic business, for instance. Or building yeah. a great product. It's just, you know, some people criticize Help Scout for having a political agenda. I don't think that we do. It's just that we are going to stand up for things that matter to us and that matter to our teams. And especially along the human rights spectrum, you know, some of those things are becoming polarizing, but we're, we're committed to those for life. And that's why it comes down to, for me, like, it's all about making something great. And it's not about making something big. So yeah. when I'm not actually motivated by bigger revenue numbers or bigger team size or things like that, then it's really easy for me to just make a decision based on values instead of something else. I think the, the polarization comes in generalizations typically, right? You know, and also the, the, the effects that come downstream, right? Because I, I don't know the, the groups that you donated to, but then someone finds out that there's one bad person at that group. And now it's like, you know, Nick and Help Scout support communists and all this other stuff, you know, it's, and it's just kind of, I don't know, it's just interesting. But I, I liked what you said about it's not a left or right issue. Like these are just the values that we need to hold. And if there's, you know, little marginal things that happen downstream, like that doesn't matter. Like those things work themselves out. But the overarching principles, what's important there. Yeah, it's important for companies to like, let's not pretend like, especially in the United States, companies, corporations are given actually more rights than most human beings that breathe air. So let's mm. not pretend that a company can't have an opinion. I've been talking a lot with the team and, and more broadly about voting, right? So we want to encourage our employees and our customers to vote and to be involved in civic engagement. And that doesn't mean we have to endorse a candidate, but we're going to match donations to nonprofits that are getting out the vote in a nonpartisan way. Like there's a lot of ways that you can have an opinion as a, as a corporation without actually just going full on, you know, with a, 
and putting kind of attaching yourself to a candidate or things like that. So even with voting, I think the companies need to learn how to speak out and get get involved civically without having to actually take a side. Well, you do have some companies and like, I don't know if you ever heard of Black Rifle Coffee, but you do have some companies that, you know, go all in right on one side yeah. or the other. And Black Rifle Coffee is, I, I don't, I don't think they actually pick a side, but most of the values they talk about are more right than left, I would argue, you know, yeah. gun rights, these types I'm of things. I'm guessing it's gun rights. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's gun rights. And, and, and what's kind of amazing is they, I mean, they're definitely over a hundred million dollars a year at this point selling coffee that's branded. I mean, it's quality coffee that that's what they talk about, but, um, shared values. It's kind of, yeah. And it's, and I think that the shared values is what they hopped onto, which was kind of amazing. Yeah. And for us, it's, you know, for us, there's three things. It's human rights, diversity, and tech and the environment. So I think every company has a right to take up certain issues that they're like, look, this is who we are. This is what we're going to be about. We're ride or die on these on these issues. Like our company is going to participate when it comes to these issues. We've decided on ours and, and I think other companies are more than welcome to decide on theirs. That's the beauty of capitalism. That's the beauty of industries like coffee that get commoditized because you end up having all these incredible, interesting brands that are trying to own a certain segment of that market that uh, maybe doesn't feel hurt. You said diversity in tech, environment, and what was the first one? Sorry. And human rights. rights. At least at first blush, it's hard to disagree with any of those, right? Like it's hard to see like a trade-off, right? But do you think like a company could have like some equivalent of like free speech or something like that as one of their big values? Like the old school ACLU, maybe not the new school ACLU, that feels like it has a lot of trade-offs right now. And you've seen this with like these fringe, you know, groups that are, you know, probably taking it too far. But like, what do you, what do you think about like a value that has maybe a more obvious trade-off or maybe that that's, that's the price you pay for having that value, I guess. It's funny how things evolve because I, I think that, you know, just take going back to the Patagonia one, I think that's an, an interesting one that, because everybody's aware of it. You know, when they said our purpose as a company is to, address climate change and take care of our home planet. I think it was a rather controversial stance at the time. And it's just become yeah. more normal. It's become more pedestrian just but by way of new data and, and society sort of coming around. So I can't speak for other entrepreneurs and, and companies, but I, I think that the three issues we chose are pretty down the middle, like things that, that people should care about and we don't feel too bad about that. I don't really think that limits the impact we can have in the market. Interesting. Yeah. And how do you like to, to maybe get this away from the highest of levels? Like, how do you make sure this permeates throughout your team? Because there's, there's two axes here. And I'm kind of going back to the, the more general, you know, strong opinions loosely held or the heavily principles. Obviously, you need to vet those people to make sure that they share or at least somewhat share those principles. But then I'm sure you have had some pressure from even like a sales, you know, person being like, Hey, if I just had these enterprise features, I could close this thousand person account or something like that. Right. Which you've kind of chosen to be, you know, squarely SMB. How do you, how do you kind of make sure that you have the right team this permeates throughout the team and you hire the right people? I think there's ways of, of interviewing for what juices and motivates people. Typically we, we look for certain things, especially in a remote company, uh, interviewing folks are certain characteristics that you would look for in a, in a remote employee and just generally somebody that is going to accelerate their understanding of a particular craft through their own sort of desire to do so, right? They're just really motivated to be excellent at the work that they do. And they also have personal values that really 
excite them to kind of attach themselves to to help scout because we kind of we wear those values on our sleeve all our dni numbers are public our values uh, around like these three issues are very public we have a program called help scout for good that gives people free accounts or discounted accounts uh, if you're working towards uh, impacting these three particular issues so our way of being pretty public about the things that we care about I think it's pretty easy for people to self-select into or out of those values. And then otherwise, we're just looking for people that love the work just like we do and can bring a different perspective and set of experiences to the team. So from a diversity standpoint, we think that's absolutely immensely helpful, right? Like there's a lot of data that says diverse teams perform better. And that's certainly been our experience. So values alignment, quote unquote, can be misconstrued in some ways. That still means that you need people that represent different backgrounds, experiences, and perspectives across the board. You and Help Scout have done, I mean, at least from looking outside and having a little bit of inside context, have done a just phenomenal job in the DEI, you know, kind of journey. Uh, I'm just kind of curious. I know you take this really seriously and you care about it. So we're kind of past, you know, that, that problem that we see. But to say this isn't hard, I think is, you know, kind of generalizing as well, right? I think a lot of people are like, well, just do it. And you're like, well, yeah, but, you know, like you just said, it's got to be value alignment. And we're trying to do diversity and we're trying to, you know, also make sure that the person has like the skill sets. And this isn't to say like, you know, it's a pipeline issue, but in some ways it can be depending on how you cross cut all those different pieces. So what are some of the things maybe even tactically that, that you guys did really well that have helped? And I know it, it's, you know, you're not done and by no means, but like, what, mm-hmm. what is, what has that journey been like? Yeah. So there's two sides of it, at least the way that that we think of it. There's diversity in terms of recruiting and hiring. And then there's inclusion, uh, which is a whole different set of tactics to to make people that represent all three of those things, different backgrounds, experiences, and perspectives, feel comfortable in the environment and, and as part of the culture. So from a hiring standpoint, it's all about proactively recruiting so that the candidate pool that you have for any role is representative of the population. Typically, what we what we have found uh, at Help Scout is that we don't have a lot of underrepresented folks. At least, if you compare it to like the general population, we have a lower number of Black and Brown folks that are in our pipeline. Uh, and so, we proactively, through our recruiting team, will recruit folks that represent that sort of profile and ask them to engage. So, we're just trying to to broaden the candidate pool itself. And a lot of businesses are nervous to do that. It feels scary. It's like, is this even legal? Uh, The answer is yes. (laughs) You can totally diversify your candidate pool. It's very much allowed and even encouraged. So that's what we try to do. Obviously, we're always trying to hire the best fit for the role, but there's a number of things that we try to do to eliminate unconscious bias throughout the hiring process. But I think the big key that a lot of businesses just don't put enough time and effort into is proactively diversifying their candidate pool. And if you do that, I think you'll find that it's much easier for you to kind of work through the process and diversify your team. You know the saying, what matters gets measured, right? So set a goal. (laughs) Uh, In the last quarter, we wanted 50% or more of our hires to be BIPOC. And that was part of our OKRs. So 
again, you're like, there's a lot of companies that are, that are a little nervous to step out on that ledge. But you know, if, if you're measuring it, that means it matters. There's very few ways to kind of get around that. So I, I, I really like that, that we do that. And we overachieved on our goal last quarter. So that was great. That's awesome, man. Congrats. Yeah. And I've always, I, I love every time you guys publish your, your numbers and I think it's, it's encouraging us to, to probably publish our numbers, you know, within the next 12 months here. And it's scary. It is scary because I know when you first published these, there were some areas that were better or for worse or like everyone else, you know, and, and we, you weren't yeah, we, we st- yeah, I'll be the first to tell you, like we still do very poorly. We don't have any racial diversity on our leadership team and that's a problem. Our leadership team is majority women and that's wonderful, but we don't. So the gender diversity is certainly there, but I'm responsible for the fact that we don't have the racial diversity that we probably should on that team. And so that's an area that's a gap. Our design team lacks racial diversity. All of our other teams do have racial diversity, but by way of publishing your numbers, you're not saying that we do a great job. I don't think that sure. anyone at Help Scout would say that there's not more work to do. There's, there's always more work to do. And at some point you just got to put your numbers out there because it's at the baseline through which you can have, you can have progress. So since we've been publishing our numbers for like four or five years now, you can actually look year by year and see progress that we've made. But we all like to say the work is never done. It's very much the case. Well, it's also one of those things that it's diversity is, is there's a lot of things to measure there and we probably can't measure perfection, right? Because there is no real perfection, but we can use mm-hmm. these proxies to get into a good place. And I don't know, the, the unlock that you just said that that's helped us a lot was that, that gray area of our diversifying a pipeline, right? Because I think that we, we ran into, is this legal? Like, is it because, you know, we, we have this flood of white guys, just to be very frank, like just coming yeah. inbound. Yeah. Um, and it was just one of those things where it's like, well, if we only do outbound in one way for our recruiting, like where, where's the line? And there's probably a line somewhere, but I, I'm certain we're not large enough to have passed it. I, I know there are, you know, there's some issues with doing ads and things like that. But I think, I don't know, it's just the dedication and measuring what matters. And when you measure those things, they tend to change. And if you're focused on them, they change, you know, in the right direction, which I think is good. Yeah. And I mean, we didn't even talk too much about the inclusion piece, but that's what gets really challenging. You know, the work is never done there either. And someone reminded me last or earlier this week, and it's so true. Every tech company has a race problem. All of them. Help Scout included because our society has a race problem. We live in a white supremacist world. And so there's going to be systemic sort of issues that exist in your company on day one. So what are you doing to at least acknowledge that those issues are there? And how is the culture you're creating at least trying to counteract as best you can those systemic issues? Uh, how is your hiring process accounting for the fact that a black woman that is applying for the same role will not have had the same opportunities? You know, how do you account for that gap? And those are that's when it gets really hard. That's when that's when these these questions become really difficult, and you just got to lean in and be vulnerable, and be willing to learn, be willing to do some more work. That's like a three-hour episode. I feel like we because that's that's because it's so tough, right? Because there's yeah. there's like logical questions there of like, well, if this happens, then therefore, how does this happen? And then there's like, how do we fix it? And it, it's not that it's not important. It's just like a it's it's interesting because it kind of parallels the entrepreneur Sisyphean task of your product's never done, growth is never done, etc. Just like that, like fixing this problem's never done, and you have to be comfortable. And and I think that. Interestingly enough, this issue is one of those that 
we try not to put into that category because it doesn't feel good. But anyone who's been an operator or a founder at a company knows, yeah, growth and scaling doesn't feel always good either because you realize you're trying your damnedest and it's just a matter of time, a little bit of luck, if not a lot of bit of luck and things like that. In this particular case, it doesn't feel good because it's our white fragility speaking. <laughs> it's our, you know, it's our insecurity. We were actually born into this white supremacist world. We didn't even, you know, we, we like to think of ourselves as good people. Well, you know, nobody, nobody wants to say, well, I have done racist things without even thinking about it. Dealing with that sort of stuff is, is really challenging. So it's messy work. It's really difficult yeah. work to do, but tech companies are going to have to, to do that work no matter what, if they want to, if they want to attract uh, the optimal workforce, because we, we go back to the data, the data shows that diverse teams perform better. I think every entrepreneur has to look at the data. We're, we're, we're pretty good at, at making decisions based on data. Why does this data not apply? Of course it applies. When you think about not just this issue, but, but some of the other like, principled stances I know you've taken, like I remember, I don't know if you remember this conversation at all. You were talking about the like one second, 30 second, three days, you know, kind of like design technique of like, hey, I'm not going to put a button there because yes, they're going to struggle the first time. But after they struggle that first time, they're going to get it all the rest of the times. And I don't want that button messing up my UI. You probably said it pretty close to what I just said, but I don't remember the exact words. How do you, how do you think about like trade-offs? Like what other trade-offs have you made, you know, maybe in, in, in the company, like whether it's a strategy trade-off, whether it's a trade-off of, yeah, we could have done, you know, 10 more million dollars there, but you know, we chose that that's not our direction. Like what is that, you know, kind of manifested itself with these strong principles? That's a really good question. You know, at times our principles have sort of gotten in the way because we've tried to reinvent the wheel. So you and I talked a little bit earlier about sales. You know, a lot of people like to say, hey, look, scale up your sales team and like figure out how to make outbound sales work, figure out how to make sales work for your business and you can you can grow. That was a, a really long process for us. We took 18 months to figure out what process was going to work for us as a sales team. And that was a significant trade-off just because most sales teams, they buy predictable revenue. They have everybody read it and they're like, let's just implement the playbook, right? And it's and it's a good playbook, a really good playbook. It's just every decision and, a, and big strategic initiative that we put in place at Help Scout has to go through this values filter, right? It has to go through this, this filter that's like, okay, what's right for our customers? What's right for our team? And what's right for our shareholders. It's all three. It's never just one. And so by way of putting everything through that filter, there are times where it's like, okay, predictable revenue playbook doesn't really work for us because of this, this, and this. So we're going to go out and do some research and we're going to spend, you know, uh, Tim, uh, who runs our sales team, spent 18 months talking to customers, selling the product and learning what process was going to work within the context of the guardrails, which in our case is, is our values and wanting to provide the, the customer uh, and our team with the optimal experience. And so I think there's just time is the trade-off typically. Typically, we just take more time to implement certain strategies to make sure that, hey, this is long-term sustainable and it's going to serve all three stakeholders, not just one of them. How do you deal with this emotionally? Or do you not even, does this not even affect you? Because I know like in, in exactly the things you're saying, the trade-offs 
they kind of rip me apart sometimes. Like I, I remember early on, there would be these decisions and, you know, especially if I didn't have like information symmetry, I would, which you never really do. But like, if I really didn't have it, I would sit there and like, oh, should I just do what they say? But it doesn't feel right and blah, blah, blah. And then some of those decisions get easier, but then there's other decisions. Like we just hired, uh, you know, someone to run our mid middle of the funnel for the first time. Mm -hmm. And they come from a very traditional, probably not predictable revenue, but the, the equivalent of that middle yep. of the funnel. And now I'm like, ah, oh, like, I don't want to like, she's the, the cook in the kitchen. Like, I don't want to like hamper her ingredients, but I also don't want to tell her how to cook. And like, it's just a, it's a struggle. Right. And, and how do you, how do you deal with that emotionally as a founder? Like sometimes I, I do laugh because I think what makes entrepreneurs entrepreneurs is, is ego to, to some extent. And of course, that can be a negative and you have to be you have to develop awareness of, of your ego. But it's also something that just gives you the ability to take on a big risk, which, which I think can be really exciting. So, uh, you know what? Again, I, I mentioned earlier that, like, my words hold weight and I have to be very aware of the weight of my words when it's when it comes to other people like coming into the business because you want them to feel ownership. You want that you want that person that you hire to feel absolute ownership over the process and you want to make sure they have every bit of information they need to do their best work. And that's where I would go immediately when I start to think about this person in charge of middle of the funnel is how do I bring out this person's best work? There's a good chance that letting my ego get in the way and being prescriptive about how they should go about their middle of the funnel work is not the right approach. So what would be the right approach? And you just kind of work your way backwards. In a lot of cases, it just means kind of learning to be a good coach, learning to kind of lean in with curiosity, ask the right questions, be willing to tolerate a mistake. You know, like I, I love to, to uh, get ex excited with myself when I'm like, yeah, I knew that would happen, right? Like I love to pat my ego on the back and be like, I knew we'd make this mistake, but it's really helpful. I've seen this time and time again to let people figure things out on their own sometimes. So a lot of times it just means kind of stepping back. And as long as they understand the guardrails, the values, right? As long as they understand all that stuff, let them make their own way. It's going to take a little bit longer, but at least in my experience, that's worked pretty well. Do you ever run into a situation where, I'm sure this probably happened in the early days, if not still, where I could very easily see someone reacting to you, reacting to the values, reacting to the guardrails, where they end up saying like, I'm leaving, you know, they quit or, you know, you guys mutually agree to something and it's almost like Nick's an ass. Nick doesn't get it. Nick is terrible. Like he could have done this. He could have done that. Like, do you run into that ever? Oh my gosh. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I run into this. If it's any consolation, I've run into this as well. And I'm always like, yeah. Oh, like I didn't mean it. That's not your changing yeah. perspective, well, I, but that is your perspective. Yeah. Yeah, I have a full 360 done uh, every year uh, where I get plenty of that feedback from my colleagues that I work very closely with, right? I get I get some negative feedback and things I have to work on. So, uh, and then, you, you know, typically a lot of the criticism comes from a lack of context. Not everyone in a 110 person organization is going to be working with the same information. So mm -hmm. for instance, you know, if we have to part ways with someone on the team, and the reason for parting ways is actually their conduct and not their performance. 
you know, we've had to deal with situations like that in the past that are extremely difficult because everyone sees these incredible contributions that person makes. And we are not even legally allowed to share any of the specifics of the conduct that, that forced us to make a decision, a tough decision along those lines. And so you better believe like I get blamed for those all the time. And uh, it, it's a super difficult thing to, to manage because I, you know, I'm still human. I want to make people happy, but I guess it's the ego again. I, I can still sleep fine at night because I feel like I'm doing my best to build a great business. And I understand that not everybody's going to agree with me along the way. That's, that's not what this is about. This is why my favorite thing, even though it's only happened twice, is when you and Facundo are both at dinner together <laughs> because it's like, it's like the same person with probably almost the same values, just arguing about things. It's, it's very yeah. entertaining for me, at least. I, I do like yeah. to debate things because I, I, that's that's often how I learn. And not everybody yeah. learns through, you know, just debating stuff. A lot of people just get annoyed by that, but I, yeah. I, I find it really interesting. It's a great learning opportunity to just kind of spar back and forth with folks. It's always fun. Yeah, absolutely. A huge thank you to Nick Francis for joining the show. Now you have what it takes to hone your values. We talked about the thin line between being stubborn and principled, software as a craft industry permeating shared values throughout a team, tactical steps to DEI, and the decision-making value filter. Oh, and if you want to support ProfitWell and the show, oh, and if you want to support ProfitWell and the show, we would appreciate it if you left a five-star review of this podcast or the equivalent rating wherever you listen and watch. And basically, I made a bet with Peter... And he said we couldn't get five people to leave a five-star review and I would like to prove him wrong. So please help me prove him wrong because that's one of the only joys I have in life. Just kidding, but please help. Thanks for listening. Make sure you subscribe to and tell your friends about Protect the Hustle, a podcast from ProfitWell Recur, the largest, fastest growing media network dedicated to the world of subscriptions. 